listening to Ping, a podcast by APNIC discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, Robbie Mitchell. In this episode, we welcome back APNIC's Chief Scientist, Jeff Houston, for his monthly chat on a topic that he has discussed exhaustively on over the last 30 years, namely IPv6. Specifically, we're going to talk about the seamlessly never-ending transition to IPv6 and whether 100% IPv6 is even the end goal given how far technology has come since IP was first implemented. Jeff, thanks for joining us again on Ping. Good morning, Robbie, and good morning, listeners. Or if it's not morning, good whatever it is for you too. Um, yeah, hi, uh, good to be back. So as I mentioned at the top of our last episode, this month marks the 10th anniversary of World IPv6 Launch Day, an event that sought to encourage internet service providers, home networking equipment manufacturers, and companies around the world to permanently enable IPv6 for their products and services. However, as many know, the transition to IPv6 began 20 years prior, when the internet community realised that 4.8 billion IPv4 addresses weren't going to be enough. Now, while IPv6 adoption was initially slow, it has recently gathered pace and now 30% of the world is using IPv6. Given that you've been measuring IPv4 depletion and IPv6 adoption for so long, Jeff, you're regularly asked and have written about when IPv6 will become the internet protocol. Actually, because of this, I half expected when I pitched this to you that you'd be like, no thanks. But to your credit, you feel the conversation is merely beginning with some uncomfortable truths still ahead. Thanks, Robbie. Great intro. You know, I always think the best conversations are the ones we rehearse the most. And if you look at the conversations which have been an endless theme of the internet since, I don't know, about 1990, IPv6, as it turned out, is, is one of the most venerable conversations. It has all of the attributes, controversial in places, but I, I think the essential attribute is reality continues to confound us. Next year will be the year of V6 has been said confidently since, I don't know, 1997, I guess. Nothing has changed. So in that respect, this is a great conversation because we've gone around this so often. And you'd think we'd have nothing more to say, but let's give it a shot and see where we come to, Robbie. Sounds good, Jeff. So where shall we pick up this conversation? And the first observation is you wanted to go back to the design of V6, which was around the period 1990 to 1993 had most of the work. But I'm going to reel it back to around 1974. And this was the time of the original research paper published by Vince Cerf and Bob Kahn on packet switch networking, the internet protocol in its first incarnation. Now, the issue about that protocol, which is actually still a major feature of what the internet is today, was to walk away from the traditional telco view that the network created a circuit between sender and receiver, and the packets were simply placed on that circuit and didn't have any, if you will, fate of their own. It's almost like a railway system. You set up all the switching points, you lock them into place, and whatever railway car you sent down the track would land up at that destination. The railway cars had no ability to change their fate. Now, packet switching turned that on its head. The, each packet was its own, if you will, exercise in fate. They were independent of what went before. They're independent of what came after. 
They had enough information for each switching point to figure out which way to switch them. And it had a third option. It could either go left or right, or it could say, nah, and drop them. So every datagram is an adventure, and the network has no held state. And this, V4, V6, V whatever, that didn't matter. What really mattered is that cut through of datagrams, of packet-based networking. Because as soon as you strip functionality out of the network, you push the cost somewhere else. And so we could build, even in the 1970s, relatively cheap networks because they were simple, yet they were astonishingly robust because you're actually placing the functionality into the bits at the end, the computers at the end, which actually had brains, unlike a telephone handset, you know, microphone speaker, nothing else. And oddly enough, this was radical. But the early versions of this, let's talk the 1970s and early 1980s, were built at a time when we had mainframes. I don't know if many of our listeners have ever seen a mainframe. In fact, this is the days when cameras used film and film was expensive to develop and there aren't that many images around, but you know, go Google. And these early mainframes were astonishingly expensive. In the initial days, the early days of computing, 40s, early 50s, countries had one. Rich countries, you know, two, yay. And by the time we were rocking into the 1970s, large corporate entities had one. Universities tended to have one. And some of the bigger universities might have had two or three. Staffed 24 hours a day, they occupied suites of rooms with air conditioning, dedicated power. It was ironmongery to the extreme. So if you're designing a computer network to connect up these beasts, how many beasts would you connect up? Not many, given that they're so expensive, even for governments and large corporations to buy. So 200 is not a bad guess. And that's pretty extreme. The entire continent of Australia at the 70s probably had 20, maybe 30. So a network that spanned a country, because that's all we ever dreamt of at the time, you'd only need a maximum of, say, 256. That's eight bits of addresses. And guess what? The early networking protocols at the time used eight-bit addressing. Bits were expensive. Memory was expensive. Now... The computing industry didn't stop. Even then, Moore's Law was weaving its magic, and the PDP-11 was the definitional mini-computer. It didn't cost hundreds of millions or even tens of millions. It cost thousands of dollars. It sat in a rack, a normal instrumentation rack, about four inches high, and it was dumber than my watch. But at the time, it was good. It was really, really good, and lots of people bought them. And all of a sudden, the census of computers in the early 1980s wasn't 200. It was getting close to 20,000. It was moving up pretty quickly, and computer manufacturers were pumping these out. So in 1983, it was pretty clear that eight bits of addressing wasn't going to cut it anymore, and that we had way more computers than the internet at the time, the NCP protocol, had room to accommodate. And so in the early 1980s, they all went into a huddle over in the Internet Department of the Defence Advanced Research Project Agency in the US, DARPA, because this was largely a US project. And they came out with the new design. And the new design kept all those essential elements of datagrams, 
stateless processing, all that good stuff. And they expanded the address space. And that was about it. Now, at the time, digital equipment was gathering traction. Again, if I'm going to talk archaeology, I'm going to talk PDP-10s, big machines. But every campus had one. There were a lot of them. And when they went to change their DECnet networking architecture, they went from 8 bits to 16 bits. Gasp! 65,000 digital computers on a network. Oh, my God, you're dreaming. The internet folk, maybe it was part of the grand dreams of the defence industry at the time, thought, nah, small potatoes. Now, don't forget, every bit doubles. Every bit makes the, the space twice as big. So they didn't go 17 bits. They didn't go 18, 19. Nah, they blew it out of the park. They went 32 bits. They expanded it from 256 to 4.6 billion computers. We'll never need that many addresses. Well, that's the thing. I'm pretty sure they all sat around with a glass of champagne or whatever they drank at the time and said, yay, this is now our life. We're done. Let's retire. Problem solved. Now, there were only a maximum 256 computers. So the actual answer was disgustingly simple. On the 1st of January, 1983, they told everyone to shut down their computer and to reboot it using TCP IP. That was the first transition, what we called a flag day. So problem solved, or so we thought. Now, the 1980s, computers started really taking off. There was the Apple II, the MSI 8080, stuff coming out from Radio Shack, I think it was called in the US. Computers started to become a consumer item. And at the same time, the top-end computers were just exploding. The late 1980s was an age of supercomputers where the whole theory was if you had enough compute power, you could actually do amazing things like predict the weather. Because the way we predict the weather is we actually simulate a huge amount of the atmosphere, not quite atom by atom, but a huge amount of the atmosphere, and just run that simulation forward. And with the exception of thunderstorms, even then, it was pretty accurate. But you needed a lot of compute, a lot. And so while one part of the industry was going high volume, small, 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 a second part of the computer industry was going hunking great supercomputers. Now, they weren't much bigger than the old mainframes. And indeed, if you've seen pictures of the early Cray 1, they were actually smaller than a mainframe. They were still large, but they weren't that big. But they were incredibly powerful and incredibly expensive. And so in the US, under a federal high-performance computing initiative, the federal government in the late 1980s decided that they would assist in the funding of eight supercomputer centers. One on each coast, a few more scattered around, a few more in marginal electorates, no doubt, you know, whatever, usual pork barreling, I guess, but eight supercomputer centers. But they weren't just going to benefit the eight lucky research institutions or universities. They were going to accompany this with a national network. And the National Science Foundation was, was given the money to do this. So up popped the first incarnation of a national academic and research network in 1988. It was based on TCP IP. It had some passing nod to OSI, but that went nowhere. And all of a sudden, the academic and research community was almost lit on fire that I could be anywhere in the US and have access to astonishing compute power. 
I could solve problems that I thought were insoluble. And so all of a sudden, that revolution transformed the use of the network and the use of computers. And then came the thing that no one ever expected, that these consumer computers were actually able to talk the same protocol. They wanted to join too. And by 1990, the first of these commercial internet service providers were not just knocking on the door, they were trying to beat the door down, going, us too, us too, we're sick of playing the telco game, you guys are doing this so fast and so cheap, we want to join. Now, the academic and research folk were kind of going, yeah, sure, why not? You need IP addresses, you can have some. In fact, they said to the world, send us a fax, we'll fax you back some IP addresses. That's true, isn't it? You would send a fax to John Postel, wasn't it? And then he would allocate you some addresses and note it down in his ledger. By this time, 1991, no, you weren't talking to John. You were talking to the minions at Stanford Research International, SRI. And these folk are still around. Hi, Ted. Hi, Ren. There are a few of them who would be, you know, beavering away, basically going to the notebooks or Excel spreadsheet or whatever we used rip off another bunch of numbers, put them in a fact sheet and fax them back. And by a bunch of numbers, what are we talking about here in terms of size of allocations? Oh, they only came in three sizes, the Goldilocks problem. If you were a university and you were there at the start, you got a class A, eight bits of network address, 24 bits of stuff internally. So you could number 24 million machines, computers on your campus. MIT got one. A few large corporates got one, including Apple. Cost nothing. So if you were big, you got an A. And, and by the early 1990s, that was yeah, a bit difficult. If you were tiny, you got a C. And a C had 24 bits of network address and only eight bits of host address. So you could only put 256 machines on your network. You go, but what sort of machines are they? Well, they're IBM PCs, they're Apples, they're little things. And for campuses, a Class C was not enough. So everyone wanted the just right, the Goldilocks solution, Class Bs. Now, a Class B divided the 32 bits of space into two lots of 16. And it took the middle bit of the B4 address space. So there were 65,000 of these Class B networks, a few less actually, but around that. And each one had 65,000 potential computers. Just right, because one was too big, one was too small, this was perfect. So when the NSF came along and opened up the internet, and then these commercials came along, everyone wanted to be. Everyone. Australia, we started up the National Academic and Research Network uh, in 1989. I remember doing the faxes for every single campus that hadn't got one yet. We boasted a few hundred Bs, easy peasy. Even computer science departments were getting their own class B. I'm like, this is insane. So 4.6 billion addresses starts to dwindle fairly quickly, I imagine. Well, there's only 65,000 class Bs. So we managed to whittle down 4.6 billion to 65,000. And at that time, that's a small number. We started having internet engineering task force meetings at the same time. I remember going to one in 1989. That was my first, but I was not at the one in 1990 where Frank Solinsky got up at a plenary session and said, you know how everyone wants a Class B? I've done some maths. And the answer is, we have three years left. And it was kind of, what? 
but we had four billion. I'm like, what are you telling us? And Frank said, well, look at the numbers. Now, this wasn't a carefully prepared spreadsheet. We're preserved, I think, somewhere. This is the days when you got up with your pen and a piece of plastic film on an overhead projector. And if you're well prepared, you did it the night before in your room. If you weren't, you did it on the fly as you spoke. So back of the envelope maths, he showed that by 1994, we would exhaust all internet addresses if we continued to hand them out this way. So apart from this initial aghast, what happened? Now, it took the dear old IETF about another year to go, God, he's right. And in that year, we've given out a whole bunch more Bs because there was no cost. They were free. And the DFO, you know, who were doling out addresses, they were just getting rid of people as quickly as they could. You want an address? Here's an address. Next, you want an address? Because at that point, just as we were running out, the internet had gone truly global. There was an internet in Japan. There was heaps of them in Europe. The NSF had done a great job, not only domestically in the US, but in its international program. And researchers all around the world in the university sector were going, yes, yes, yes. And this sort of commercialization was just around the corner going, ooh. So we had a problem. And it was very quickly realized that the problem was now big enough that flag days wouldn't cut it. The other problem we had is we never thought this was ever going to happen in our lifetime. In 1983, we cracked open the champagne and said, no more new networking technology. We've solved this problem. Let's move on to other problems. So we were kind of sitting there going, what are we going to do? Now, the problem was it wasn't just one problem. You see, at the time, the National Science Foundation was gluing things together with routers that were actually IBM PCXTs. They were just normal, off-the-shelf, conventional PCs. And the amount of capacity they had in their routing tables was 20,000 routes. And by about 1990, we'd hit that number. So we had kind of two explosions happening right at the time the internet was taking off. One, we were running out of addresses really quickly. And two, we were running out of routing really quickly. And we had no answer. So one idea was to say, well, it was just an experiment. Oops, sorry about that. Let's go and do something else. But there was very little of something else out there that particularly the Americans were interested in pursuing. Yes, the European telcos and some of the industry operators in Europe had been slaving away for years, producing this behemoth of of networking architecture called the Open Systems and Interconnection Standard, OSI. Now, does anyone remember PL1? We'd had Fortran and BASIC and Algol and APL and blah, blah, blah. And it was decided we needed the programming language that would synthesize all of these. Let's call it programming language one. Yeah, that worked well. Complete disaster. But, you know, undeterred, we then decided that ADA was going to be the new PL1. Yeah, right. And OSI had the same kind of problem. It was actually an exercise in what Marshall Rose described, who was a well-known satirical commentator and technologist at the time. He actually built an OSI stack. And he came out saying, well, I built it now. And let me assure you, A, it doesn't work. And B, all this is just paperware about vaporware. It doesn't work, he claimed. It's not an answer. 
And so the Americans particularly sat there and said, our dear internet, we've stuffed it. And there's no point trying to make OSI better. It's broken out of the factory. Let's huddle together and do something about this. So the Grand Beauty Parade happened, 1991, 92, where a whole bunch of research groups started making new protocols. And for a period there, every IETF meeting had a beauty parade of crazy ideas. Crazy ideas on how to solve routing, and crazy ideas how to solve addressing. And it sort of went three ways. And this was the infamous meeting. I think it was the second meeting of the Internet Society in June 1992 in Kobe in Japan, where there were kind of three approaches that we were working out. One was go radical, change everything, keep the datagram structure, but everything else is up for grabs. Go crazy, knock yourself out. One of them used, for example, in this radically different model, almost the way humans use maps. If I'm here in Canberra in Australia, and if I wanted to go to somewhere in, I don't know, Germany, the first thing I would do is not bring out a detailed roadmap of the city of Cologne. That is not helpful. From Australia, what I really want is A, how to get to an airport, B, how to catch a plane that gets me closer to Germany. I only need detail when detail is important. And there are a couple of quite radical approaches where the packets provide a different context at different points in its journey along the network. Nice idea. Active networking where instead of the switch holding the algorithm and the packet holding the address, why didn't the packet contain micro-instructions to program the switch as the packet was being processed? Here's how you handle me. And you regard the switch as a general purpose computer and the packet as a program. Nice idea. Academically, I think it's fantastic. But people are still working on it today. And there were a number of those kinds of approaches being touted. The second approach was let's just ditch it and do OSI. Yes, I know you don't like it, but it's out there. The dear old folk in the United Kingdom, the Janet Network is supposedly based on this stuff, the coloured book protocols. And then there was some push to say, well, if we've got an alternative, that's the only one left standing, let's try and fix it up. And there was last but not least one that said, if the problem is addresses and the problem is routing, let's just solve one problem, the addressing problem in IP, and, and let's solve routing problems elsewhere. And, and this was, let's just have a protocol that expands 32 bits to some large number. They weren't quite sure, but it had to be at least 64 bits, some large number, and change nothing else. Nothing. So you're alluding to the inception of IPv6 and it's 128 bits. Well, you say that as if that was an easy decision, Robbie. Many, many months were wasted arguing between 64 bits, 96 bits, and 128 bits. And you go, but how could you do that? Might I remind you at the time about ATM, asynchronous transfer mode, which despite all the normal laws of binary arithmetic came out with a cell that was 53 octets long. This is insane. This is a committee. Do you know what happened? Given your past comments on committees, Jeff, um, I'm guessing a lot of toing and froing. The Americans were arguing in the standards body for a bigger cell. 
They originally started at 128 bytes and compromised down to 64 because we need to move data. The French, who were the most vocal, said, no, this is all about voice. Jitter is really important. We want the smallest cell we can possibly have. 32 bits is really, really cool. So these two camps, either side of the Atlantic, were arguing till they were blue in the face, 64 versus 32. So someone said, let's compromise and make it 48. Weird number, but let's go there. What about the header? Oh, we need a header. How long should a header be? 16 bits? Nah, too big. Four bits? Nah, too small. How about seven bits? (laughs) Seven. So you might say, wow, it's just numbers. Who cares? A lot of folk cared a lot. And the IETF wasted a lot of time over 64 bits versus 96 bits versus 128 bits because we just couldn't figure it out. So in the end, there was a knock the heads together meeting of the IETF in the middle of 93 that said, time to call a stop to this endless debate. Let's just do something because we're getting nowhere. And so the answer was, well, if we go really, really big, so what? If we go really small, we're going to be back here again. So they went really, really big. And again, you go from 4 billion to 340 trillion, trillion, trillion. It's a big number. Two to the power 64 is a big one. But in theory, nothing else changed. So it was kind of the minimal change. This is cool. So here we are in 1994 going, well, you know, we've solved this problem of addressing. Here's V6. Let's just, you know, I think it was even called V6 even then. It was IPNG because no one was keeping track of version numbers. That was a couple of years down the track. We actually figured out six was the next number. But at the same time, this whole thing about we're running out of addresses was really happening. It was getting difficult. And there was this really neat draft that came out, and it said, let's share addresses. What? Well, as the packet moves through the network, can we change its source address? Of course you can. You don't route on the source address. So interestingly, you can call yourself different addresses depending on who's calling you. Now, let me give this some context. I live on a street with a street number in a city in a country. Now, from the other side of the world, you just need to know Australia. Nothing else matters. Send this packet to Australia. Only when you get close to me, do the details matter? Because you're not going to make a different switching decision on the other side of the world based on whether I live in number 20 or number 22 or number 23, are you? You're not. And this idea of translating addresses and sharing them use the same principle. Now, the other thing about sharing is kind of interesting. Not everyone talks at once. Not even all the computers talk at once there's long periods where it's sitting there going, what do I do now? So what if I assigned an address to a computer only when it was talking and used that address for someone else when it wasn't talking? That works fine if you're a client, doesn't work if you're a server, no problem. Let's give all the servers unique addresses so that you can always reach a server, but clients are not meant to be reachable. You see, one of the things about this computing revolution was that previously our mainframe computers did everything. 
They were the client and the server and the this and the that. I used to be a sysadmin at the local university. We stuffed everything into one computer, the mail relay, the Usenet news feed, the routing system. Everything ran on one computer. It was client, it was server, it was everything else. Oddly enough, out there in the labs and in the offices, they were just clients. They weren't hosting web servers. They weren't hosting anything. They were reaching out and using other people's servers. And so when you divide the world up into clients and servers, it naturally follows that clients don't need to do anything. They don't need unique addresses. They just need unique addresses of servers. And so all of a sudden, address sharing became interesting. Now, let's go back to V6 again and pause for a second and see where we've got to. We've designed a new protocol with 128 bits of addresses. Great. Hi, I'm running V4. Can I speak to you? You're running V6. Well, no. Why not? I only speak to machines with 128 bits of addresses and you seem to be missing 96 of them. Oops. What am I going to do? Run V6 as well. And so there was no backwards compatibility. If you deployed V6, until everyone ran V6, you had to keep on running V4. And if I deployed V6 by myself in isolation, who'd speak to me? So this was difficult because you needed orchestration. You couldn't do what we call piecemeal deployment. We couldn't do an uncoordinated transition because it required everyone to do it. It actually assumed a flag day when a flag day was impossible. Nets, on the other hand, you deploy it, I don't have to deploy it. I even don't know if you've deployed it or not. Your decision is independent of everybody else's. So it was dramatically deployable because you didn't need to cooperate with anybody else. That's brilliant. Interestingly also, it solved a number of problems. We were starting to get in the late 1980s malware. The Morris worm of 1988 shocked everyone. Now he was an innocent kid and it wasn't really malicious, but it knocked apart large amounts of the then tiny internet at the time. And security was getting to be a big issue. Not everyone is nice. Nats, like it or not, actually solved a set of problems by default. You didn't need to be a highly competent sysadmin because if you ran a NAT, if you didn't invite the traffic, it didn't come in because you couldn't address the machines on the inside of the NAT. They didn't have public addresses. You couldn't reach them. This was indeed a de facto firewall. This is brilliant. All of a sudden, I deploy an edge device that translates addresses and I not only I get out of the address crunch, but I get some security benefits thrown in well, I'll buy it, but it's not very good. Nats aren't really a security device. Oh, don't give me that. Look, I'm just going there, right? What can possibly go wrong? And the answer was very little on, in the long run. And so Nats took off. And as we went through the great internet boom of the 2000s, as we transitioned from dial-up modems, God, they were horrible, weren't they? To always on DSL. As we changed our model of what the internet was, we actually did a wholesale adoption of NATs, not V6. Because you see, V6 didn't have any differentiators. It really was just V4 with larger addresses. So I couldn't stop deploying V4 because not enough other folk spoke V6. 
I still had to do all the work I was doing anyway, and I had to do more work. So it was really choosing a path of least cost and resistance. Well, would you pay me any more, O customer, if you also had V6? And the answer from the customer was, A, what's V6? And B, if I add it to my computer, will that make it more reliable or less? That's a difficult question. Uh, Less. What? It makes it a little bit more fragile because all of a sudden you've got two protocols running seamlessly in the background. And if one of them fails and your application fails, how do we know what's going on? Because it's seamlessly in the background and the help desk has a problem. Everyone has a problem with dual stack. So interestingly, if I run V6, my costs go up, my benefits go down and I can't make users pay. Or if I just run NATs, happy, happy, joy, joy. So what do you think the industry did? It just sat there and said, you know, there's V6 stuff. Great, wonderful. Glad it's in somebody's future. Right now, right here, today, current marketing plan, I'm just adding NATs. We had the entire cellular industry convert to smartphones. And after a little bit of kerfuffling, settled on NATs, large scale NATs. And so every major you know, mobile deployment, even today, operates basically on Net 10. At home, on 192.168. And I guess you are too. And I guess everyone is because, you know, NATs, they just work. And so in some ways you kind of go, well, V6 is never going to happen, right? But IPv4 addresses are limited, particularly big blocks, and you can only stretch NAT so far. Never a truer word was spoken, Robbie. With NATs, each address has another 16-bit support field and about another two to three bits of sharing. But even that, for a very, very big network, is not enough. Now, for medium and small networks, enterprises and so on, knock yourself out. It's fantastic. But if you're Comcast, you're sitting there going, why does it suck to be so big? And the answer is, because you are. If you split up to be a whole bunch of small companies, oh, horror, you wouldn't be striking the problems you're striking. But Comcast didn't want that. They wanted a business model that was aggregate. So did Reliance Geo. So does China Unicom. So do many of the large providers. And for them, this is not a choice. Nats also have their brick wall. It's just for most of us, it's further in the future. But for them, it was a here and now decision. Now, again, their problem, I run V6, who do I talk to? And so the big folk really needed to keep this going because their future wasn't a future that could rely on Nats. And so a lot of horse trading went around, a lot of pushing and shoving. Microsoft was persuaded to add V6 into their protocol stacks quite early on. And what they did, which I actually think made an incredible disservice, is that they decided, well, if I'm living in an island that only speaks V4, I'll do the universal tunneling solution. I will put my V6 packets and wrap them up in a V4 wrapper so that I can leave the island and look like I'm V4. And I'll send my packet to a magic unwrapper and out of this packet will emerge a V6 packet, which will then get sent on to its destination. Uh, We called it six to four. It was a disaster. Tunneling doesn't work. Playing around with the packet size on the fly, which tunneling tries to do, is always a disaster at volume. And so the failure rate of connections made over this wonderful technology 
was pretty bad. Uh, 10, 20% of connections failed. And it's kind of, if you're supporting six to four, why do you hate your customers? Why do you despise them so much? <laughs> a lot of what they do isn't going to work. The other problem was that we were deploying NATs and six to four didn't work through NATs. And so some clever chaps at Microsoft got together uh, and said, right, we're going to make a NAT friendly version of six to four. We're going to tunnel through NATs. So the outer wrapper is actually going to be elastic. Uh, Teredo, was, it was called. Two problems. I didn't mention, maybe I should have, that when NATs came along in the IETF, there was a strong body of opinion that said, even arsenic looks better than what you've just done. By placing state into the network and doing address translation, you have not just trashed the end-to-end architecture. You have shredded it. You are definitely working for evil. And we, the IETF, refuse, point blank, to standardise NATs. We refuse to actually provide a standard way of behaviour for NATs because NATs are evil. They're just evil. And this was actually a theological debate. No basis of reality. Everyone was deploying NATs, but the NATs had no common standard. No NATs were the same. And a guy called Dan Wing at the time actually went and analysed. He bought a whole bunch of NATs from the local store and found that even two units with the same model number behave differently. Because, you know, new firmware, new NAT, new, new behaviour. And so NATs were a disaster. And the first thing you had to do with a NAT is send packets through it in various permutations to figure out how it behaved. Because if you didn't get it right, things got lost. And so Microsoft's wonderful solution to Rado, which it put into all Windows, I think it was 3.1, had a failure rate of not just 10 to 20%, they were hitting all-time highs of 35% of all connection attempts failed. So this whole thing meant that V6 was actually getting a really, really bad reputation. It wasn't your future, it was your nemesis. It was the thing you never wanted to deploy. And so throughout the 90s and early 2000s, the answer was V6, no. So getting back to our large mobile operators who all of a sudden have realized that NATs aren't going to cut it, we don't have enough IPv4 and we're not willing to spend the tens of millions of dollars to purchase them on the open market. We have to go IPv6 and we have to drag everyone with us if we don't want to be islands in the sea of IPv4. Well, don't forget, too, that address trading, the open market, is only a recent invention. It didn't matter how big you were. If you go back a few years, you could only get a slash 24. You could only get a tiny morsel from your RIR, and you weren't allowed to buy and sell addresses, was the theory. And and so in some ways, you were cornered. It wasn't just you couldn't afford addresses. You couldn't get addresses. Uh, It was only when we truly ran out that the market came in and started to price this which oddly enough for some folk was a godsend. If I can't get it at any price, I've got a problem. If I can get it for a price, I know where I am. So we, we put in transfer markets after you know much blood on the floor and we kind of got that market working. But even so, yes, it placed a price on scarcity and some folk weren't willing to pay that price or didn't think it was reasonable. Or in the case of say Reliance Geo or Comcast, the market didn't have enough liquidity to meet their demands anyway. So we're back to... Some folk need V6. They just can't negotiate their way around this. And 
Everyone else has to follow. Okay, here we go. Everyone else has to go there. So it's not turn off V4, turn on V6. It's a case of progressively, we need to turn on V6 everywhere in conjunction with still running V4 over NATs. And you can only turn off V4 when... Everyone else is using dual stack. And so when you said 30% of the world's users have V6, that's a great number. But look at it from the reverse side of the coin. If I run V6 only, 70% of the world can't get to me. If I run V6 only, I immediately cut myself out of 70% of the world's users. And we're not talking just about networks. We're talking about the top 1,000 Alexa websites as well. It's only around 30% of those can be accessed via IPv6 too. Right. There are 4 billion users who fund the network. If you say 3 billion of them, a little under 3 billion of them can't get to you, uh, that's not their problem. That's your problem. You have no choice. You can't do V6 only. And so we're actually going to wait for everyone to go dual stack. <sighs> dual stack. What's the idea of dual stack? Well, the whole idea is I don't know which protocol is going to work best. So what I'll do is I'll try to establish a connection in one protocol. And if that doesn't work, I'll switch to the other. Does that sound reasonable? Totally. Right. If one connection attempt doesn't work, I'm going to try the other protocol. The TCP IP stack, most folk follow the Berkeley implementation, which was done in 1986 under a DARPA contract. And it was at a time of modems and one protocol. And the way it worked was actually astonishingly tolerant. Hi, Robbie, here's a SYN packet. Reply to me if you get this with a special packet that has both the SYN and the ACK flag sent. And by the way, here's a magic number in my SYN packet. Give me back that number. Wait. Now, if you and I are both feeling lucky and it's, you know, a Wednesday and, you know, the time is right, you'll send me back a packet and off we go. Here's an act. Let's have a connection. Yay. But what if the packet, my packet is lost or your reply is lost? Oh, Robbie's not home. I'm going to give up. No, I'm going to send another and another and another. Now, that's impolite. It's like there's a car crash ahead, send more cars. So we did a system called exponential backoff. Send a packet, wait for a second, got nothing. Send another packet, wait for two seconds, then four seconds, then eight seconds. When do you stop and say, no, Robbie's really not at home? Well, a lot of the implementations stopped after three minutes. Three minutes. No one's going to hang around for three minutes to get their web page to load. So here I am sending you a V6 in and I send you another and another and another and three minutes left. Oh, V4. Off we go. Hi, Robbie. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine. Glad you waited three minutes. Not. Now, Windows was more aggressive. It tried for 21 seconds. Again, I don't know many people who would wait for 21 seconds for their web page to load, Jeff. So dual stack is kind of a mess. And so it was kind of, oh, geez, about 10, 15 years ago that we refined dual stack and actually set it up as a two horse race. So we sent both a V4 and a V6 packet at about the same time. And in the first version of this, the first answerer won. I send out both packets, V4 and V6, and the first to respond, that's the protocol I'm going to use. Now, oddly enough, 
on the theory that everything's interconnected to everything else, that's actually the world's worst approach. Because when I send as a client a V4 outgoing packet, I'm going to go through a NAT. What creates a NAT binding? An outgoing SIN. So even if I have V6 and you have V6, in a pure version of this dual stack, I'm going to consume a scarce resource, a V4 address NAT binding, only, if you will, to figure out that I can use V6. That's stupid. And so we very quickly got to refinement of this, which was, I'm going to bias it. I'll send V6, wait for 50 milliseconds, then I'll send V4. Sort of worked, sort of didn't. Next refinement, I'm not going to bother about that. I'm just going to use the DNS. I'm going to ask a DNS question, what's your V6 address? I'm going to also ask, what's your V4 address? And I'll give the V6 question a 50 millisecond advantage. If I get back a V6 answer, 50 milliseconds sooner than the V4 answer, we're going to do that. The happy eyeballs algorithm. Happy eyeballs. So we're not going to consume a NAT binding. The way this works is the more people who use V6, the more happy eyeballs lead you to V6, the less pressure there is on NATs, the more this happens, V4 naturally dies. And so you'd kind of think, well, we're done, aren't we? This whole transition is now automatic. The more folk that do V6 dual stack, the more V4 just slowly dies away because happy eyeballs, we're there. That all sounds good in theory, Jeff, but it hasn't happened. Why is that? Well, there's been a number of really good studies of the uptake of technology. Let's do a quick quiz. I'm going to ask you two questions about technology uptake in the United States. Refrigerators in domestic households, first introduced in America in 1930. Do you know how long it took to get pretty much universal adoption of household refrigerators? Taking cost into consideration, I'm going to say 10 to 15 years, Jeff. It took 30 years. Now, I don't know about you, I can't imagine life without a fridge. The Iceman cometh once a week is just crazy. But nevertheless, it took until 1960, 30 years for something that I'd regard as an essential. Now, refrigerators pretty much all ran on electricity. So let's do the next quiz question. Domestic electricity, first available, early work by Thomas Alva Edison, and indeed the company started by Tesla, which was Westinghouse. Let's say it started in 1905. How long would it take to put domestic electricity reticulated across American households? Now you're talking about a larger utility infrastructure, not just putting consumer goods in people's houses. So trying to span that out to all parts of the country, I'm going to say 40 to 50 years. 50 years. I don't know what folk were doing in 1940 out there in rural and remote, but I guess they were using log fires or something. I don't know. You could say similar to the rollout of broadband to remote areas these days. Yeah, right. Sometimes technology takes forever. And in particular, even with refrigerated electricity, where in retrospect, we can go, there were advantages to having it. There really, really were. And it was a social good. It actually had a whole bunch of national subsidy to get there. It still took forever. Now, in V6, there's no government program. There's no incentives. And interestingly, because we decided on a V6 protocol, which was no different to V4, and indeed, if we push it a bit, we actually find most of the things that V6 changed to V4 don't work. If we change fragmentation, bad idea. 
we introduced extension headers. Terrible idea. They just don't work. And so the bits we changed are worse. And V6 is actually less functional than V4 in, in many ways. And there's no first buyer advantage. And so the whole reason why we're still here in 2022, 11 years after the IANA actually ran out of every last address, and the entire world runs on V4 NATs, it really does. All those 4 billion users, none of them are V6 only. The whole reason why we're here is actually because V6 wasn't different enough to make it attractive as an alternative. Okay, Jeff. So while it's easy to look back with the benefit of hindsight and reevaluate choosing to extend IPv4 addresses rather than taking a more radical approach to the addressing and routing problem, surely with 30 years of experience, there are ways we can improve the way we do networking in the internet that aren't reliant on 1980s technology. Well, you're right. Both v4 and v6 and OSI are 1980s technologies. They borrow a huge amount from telephony. Every connected device has a unique address. The transactions on the network are based solely on addresses. That to push a packet through the network, it needs to be given an address which is its destination. And this is really a battle, V4 and V6, between competing 1980s technologies. Okay, store that thought and think a little bit about NATs and think a little bit about another technique we use called Anycast, where the same address is physically located in multiple places. And so when I send a packet to, here's a good example, 1.1.1.1, in Australia, my packet ends up on a server in Sydney. But you're in Brisbane, Robbie. It'll end up on a server in Brisbane. And if the dear listener is somewhere in, say, I don't know, Reykjavik, it might well end up on a server in Reykjavik. And as long as the answers are the same, who cares? Because oddly enough, we've got heaps of communications. We've got heaps of computing. We've got heaps of storage. This is abundance like we've never, ever built before. Silicon is amazing. What we don't have is enough addresses to uniquely address them all. And so we started doing Anycast, multi-addressing. Now, this becomes interesting. Because all of a sudden, I can smear services around the world by simply giving them the same address. But why do I bother with addressing? Because at my application level, everything is names. I actually don't want to go to 1.1.1.1. I want to go to, hi, DNS resolver, give me an answer. You want to go to, no, don't bother me with details. I want to speak to the DNS resolver by name. I want to speak to Google by name. I want to speak to services by name. So why don't we think about name-based networking? And the answer is, well, aren't we already doing that? You see, applications now view the world as names, not addresses. When we do a connection, the first thing that happens in the HTTP protocol is, I've reached a server, and there might be zillions of websites sitting there. The one that I want from you is in the first line of what I say to you as an HTTP transaction, the server name indication. I want to go to flugelblah.example.com. And the server goes, ah, index, index, index. Yes, I host that server too. Here's the context you wanted. And so applications are now differentiating by name anyway. 
And so you really got to wonder, why is this competition between two venerable, aging 1980s computer protocols even relevant? Now, let me give you one more radical thought just to really cap this through. In 1983, when we said 32 bits and 4 billion computers, we confidently predicted that this would last forever. And, you know, yeah, seven years and the end was in sight. Oops. With 128 bits in 1994, let's say, we confidently predicted that this would last forever. We were so confident that we sliced off the low order 64 bits. Remember class A, class B, class C? We only have class A because we sliced off the bottom half and said, that's the interface address. You can't use that in the routing space. So how big's V6? Well, 64 bits, naturally. Oh, is that true? No. What do you mean, no? So I'm a mobile phone. I've got V6. How big is the address prefix that I've been given? Well, 64 bits. But hang on, that's not enough. What do you mean? That's a perfectly good computer. It can actually act as a hub. It has Bluetooth. It has Wi-Fi. It can be a hotspot. Why can't it act as a router? Well, it can. So how much addresses do I need? You need multiple 64-bit addresses for those, each of those multiple devices hanging off you. You need a, now in the first incarnation, the IETF said 48 bits of prefix, 16 bits of local fields, and then 64 bits of interface. Yep, 48 bits. That's how big V6 is, is it? Yes, came the confident answer. Is that enough? How big is V4 plus NATs? I have a funny feeling you're going to say 48. Yes, 16 bits of port and 32 bits of address. Now, oddly enough, I'm sharing, so I'll take another couple of bits. So that's about, you know, 50 bits. And, and V6, it's not everyone has a slash 48. What's the average? Oh, I'll be generous, 52 bits. By the time we run out of NAT space around the world, V6 will give you a year or two, and it will also have run out. And particularly when you're talking about IoT and just connecting the next 3 billion people who aren't even using the internet yet. We weren't thinking big enough when we started taking those 128 bits and taking dramatic bytes out of 64 bits of interface ID when everyone said, oh, that's a privacy leak. Make them random. And so all these packets carry 64 bits of random junk, which oddly enough has sliced off the entire future of V6 and condemned it to a future where its lifetime is not much different to V4 and NATs. So where are we in all this mess, Jeff? And where do we need to go? Well, confused is a good way to describe it. And literally, if you're looking for 100 years of silicon growth, neither protocol as we currently know it has that much capability. So where are we going? This is the most fascinating question because I actually think in the last 10 years, we have completely changed the internet and not even noticed. Now, almost nothing travels around the world. Google does it for me. Amazon does it for me. Meta does it for me. Most of my conversation works with a data center down the road and everyone else just feeds the caches. And my conversation is extremely small and extremely limited. And we've actually pushed the networking problem onto those large folk. What protocol does Facebook run internally? Magic. Don't care. Magic. 
What protocol does Google run internally? Forget, don't care, magic. Do they have to run IP? Well, no, it's up to them. It's their private network. How many bits of address space does it have? Why do you care? Does it matter? And so what we've actually done is we've shrunk the public network down to the last mile problem. And so when you think about unique addressing, if I am assigned net 10 in Australia and you're assigned net 10 in, I'll pick on Reykjavik again, in Iceland, does it matter? If all we're doing is speaking to our local data center and all addresses are relative to that center, it doesn't matter if those worlds reuse the same address. So long as both data centers are indexed the same. Well, and they're indexed by name, not by address. They're indexing resources and services. And so if we truly are building a network that is meant to be about content and service, what's this addressing stuff? It's so 1980s, it's so telephone, it's so wrong. And why should we die a death of address exhaustion when they don't even matter anymore. And so my suspicion is, Robbie, that this whole how long do we reach the V6 Nirvana is actually the wrong question. We are where we are. And interestingly, the industry has been solving its problems of building bigger, faster, and cheaper in ways that discard the bits that don't matter and making the bits that do matter ever better. We're building more data centers in the same way that we built shopping centers in the 1980s, dot the world with them. And we're building back-end feeder networks so that you don't have to, and I don't have to, directly go to the one server on the planet that has the data I need. Because if that server pushes its data into a cloud, then all I need to go is go to my local data center and go, knock, knock, I want X, and X is there. And some folk are so good at this they charge me nothing to do that. Zero dollars, nothing. The whole world is clouded up already. And yet we keep on talking about addresses as if they're important. Well, as an internet registry, it is our business. But in saying that, we do have a vision for a global, open, stable and secure internet. So it would be somewhat amiss for us to not consider what are the best options for the health and future of the internet, which is what we're exploring through Apnic Labs and this podcast in many ways. The whole joy of being a researcher and a scientist here is to look beyond today. And in actual fact, if you generalize this a bit, APNIC and a whole bunch of other folks, including the dear guys at the, the domain name system, we're in the infrastructure business. We're in the business of the common glue that defines a network. And one of the things that we desperately need to do is to look to the future. If we don't, we die. White Star Shipping Lines, biggest shipping company in the world 120 years ago, dead and gone. Why? They didn't find railways as important. They didn't find aeroplanes as important. They were a shipping company that ran liners. Wrong. We are an infrastructure entity. We provide that infrastructure service to make networking work. And the real clue is, Look beyond what you do today to understand how we're using those elements and what's important and make sure we and everyone else understands that evolution. And I find this sort of trail to be really fascinating and interesting because the internet today is not what it was even five to 10 years ago. The amount of packet miles my packets travel is now astonishingly small. And I live on a small island at the bottom end of the Pacific. And it's true for me. 
true for everyone else. And so this is not about V4 versus V6 anymore. It's actually about the evolution up the stack into application-centric networking, into making goods and services work in conjunction at a scale with applications. And there's a huge amount of work yet to do there. But the silicon industry is busy saying, cope with a world of a trillion devices, 10 trillion. And I think the only way we're going to do that is to actually spread that computing load across at the application level and addresses. Well, it was quaint. It was amusing. We all had fun. But I'm not sure they're going to keep the next generation of networking glued together. I think it's a different world. And if that's not sufficiently challenging, Robbie, I'm not sure what is. <laughs> we promised that this was going to be a different take on the traditional transition to IPv6 discussion, and you've delivered in spades, Jeff. And while it may be somewhat controversial, history shows that we have had three goes at transitioning the internet, and the first was the only one that was successful due to the diminutive size of the network at the time. So instead of repeating past mistakes with IPv4 and IPv6, Maybe it's time to think more modern and develop an internet based on its current and future use. Well, yes, doing the same thing twice and getting the wrong answer twice actually means you're not phrasing the question right. You're not actually doing the right thing. And so, yes, you have to think more wildly than that in order to actually get to a different point. We'll leave it there, Jeff. Thanks again for another fun and thought-invoking discussion. Thank you, Robbie. I'll make fun, right? It just launched into those spaces. Why not? Why not indeed? Thanks to everyone who's also made it this far. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If so, please subscribe, write a review and tell your colleagues about it. If you'd like to learn more on the history and current state of the transition to IPv6, check out the links in the show description to Jeff's recent post on the subject, as well as his annual addressing analysis. Also, be sure to check out the IPv6 at APNIC portal. Finally, if you've got a story or research to share, get in contact via email, ping at apnic.net or our APNIC social media channels. And be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time.